Hello, and welcome to our Biblical Education Series here at One Fellowship Church in Waco, Texas. You can find this series and others from our Biblical Education Program available online at onefellowshipumc.org and on the One Fellowship Church podcast. This evening, we are pleased to welcome Rev. Spike Burt, who is leading us through this six-part series on the Book of Ephesians. Rev. Burt studied at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama, and currently works at McLennan Community College. All right, so tonight we are going to cover, let me just kind of cover the topics that are available, uh, and then we can kind of either cover all of them really quickly uh, and very thinly, or we can really kind of focus in on whichever one that you want to focus in on. So uh, let's do a little background of where we are so far in Ephesians. Uh, We know that Paul wrote the book. We know that he wrote it to the Ephesians. Uh, we know that they were both Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus who got saved. Um, they, they had some fear of some demonic powers and, and, and fear of the goddess Artemis. Um, and we've seen Paul address that time and time again. Uh, they were a discouraged group of people. And so Paul is writing to encourage them. And he encouraged them by talking about hope. And so uh, chapter 1 really lays the foundation of our hope and how... Uh, because we are in Christ, which is our identity, we now have hope. And so this, we have a very realized hope that has practical effects that can change our life today. So we're not waiting to experience um, the blessings of God. Like, we're not waiting until we die to experience these things. Paul says we can actually experience them now. Um, he goes on in chapter 1, um, and in chapter 2 he talks about how the um, the, the amazing blessing of hope is really found in the gospel. Um, and that gospel uh, is about how Jesus uh, transforms us through his grace. And, and so we have the foundation, we have the uh, realized hope, we have the foundation of hope in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, which we covered last week, chapter, um, the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, he begins to talk about the effect of hope. And so last week we talked about how uh, Paul lays the groundwork, the theological groundwork, foundation, for why we need to have unity. And so the effect of hope is that we become united. So if we are sharing in Christ, and our identity is in Christ, uh, that necessitates that you and I are in this together, thus unity takes place. Uh, As we all know, a lot of times unity does not take place. And so Paul is going to lay out some very clear guidelines this week of how to have this unity. Last week we looked at the theology, we looked at how the cross um, broke down the walls of division, we looked at how he prayed that we would have strength so that we can actually figure this stuff out together. This week we're covering some seriously practical point-by-point statements by Paul about how we actually do this. And so here are the topics that we can cover tonight. Uh, Paul talks about spiritual gifts um, he is going to talk about, after talking about spiritual gifts, he's going to go into a very, very pointed moral instruction of if we're going to live in unity, we need to change our lives. And he's going to give some clear-cut uh, instructions of what that looks like. Um, in chapter 5, Paul is going to give us three metaphors of how we're supposed to live our lives. Uh, basically, we're supposed to live in the love of Jesus, the light of Jesus, and the wisdom of Jesus. Chapter 6 we get into the household code, um, which is that whole submission thing. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. Uh, children are called to submit to their parents. Um, and then the really tricky ones, slaves, are called to submit to their masters. So 
I want to kind of leave it up to you all what you would like to cover tonight. Like I said, we can cover all of it, uh, but to do that, I'll be talking a whole bunch. Um, or we can just kind of cover whatever section you're like, let's cover that one. Now, if you choose to cover just one section, know that in your book, you can get a very, very detailed description of all the stuff in this chapter. So if you go and read, there's the digging deeper sections in your book that will cover all the spiritual gift stuff, it will cover all the submission stuff, it's there. So what would you all like to do this evening? Would you like to cover one section or just have me verbally, diarrhea, all this stuff? Because there's tons of it. I like both sections. I read them and okay. I enjoy it. I mean, I, wouldn't, I don't know which one I would pick if I had okay. to pick one. Any thought, any other thoughts of what you would like to discuss tonight? What interests you? Well, I, I think the whole <laughs> it does deal on hope. Yeah, so we, we, uh, if we look at and examine and the roots of, you know, what is our hope? You know, yes, and that's, that's what we've been discussing this whole time. We'll definitely hit that with whatever section we choose because hope is there. What do you think? What do you want? All right, what do you want? What are you thinking? To me, uh, the first two that you mentioned, the spiritual gifts and the... The submission stuff? Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about that really quickly then. Uh, there's a lot. All right. So to do that, um, I'm going to go out of order. Uh, so in the random chance that I have any friends from back home listening to this through uh, the audio, I'm sorry, I'm going out of order really quickly. Uh, chapter 5, we're going to cover really quickly because Paul says, look, unity, in order to have unity, we need to follow the example of Jesus. The example of Jesus is love. You need to love one another, you need to live in the light, which means you need to avoid dark stuff, uh, and you need to live in the wisdom of Jesus. So that is a really quick summary of chapter 5. Um, so let's look at the unity of the gifts. So this is found on page, let's go to the text, first, uh, page 21 on, in your little books. <coughs> 21. There's some really cool stuff in this passage, and we'll talk about it. So, will somebody read uh, verses 1 through 10 for us? On uh, Ephesians 4, 1-16 on page 21. Okay. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urged you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling <coughs> to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us, each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions to the earth? Lord regions to earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might feel all things. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, let's stop there for a second. Look at verse 1. This is very important. Uh, we see a big shift in Paul's language. Mm -hmm. um, up to this point, it's been a lot of theology and some practical stuff, and here he's like, hit the brakes, let's talk about practical stuff. Let's talk about how this actually affects our lives. And so Paul urges us, and he's talking to the Ephesians, who are in a mess, uh, last week we talked about how the Jews and the Gentiles really distrusted one another. There was some bad blood. That bad blood did not end when they both met Jesus. So Paul spends the whole last chapter talking about, look, Jesus' blood 
covers bad blood. And y'all need to be working and walking together. And so Paul urges them. And this urge is it's not a, it's not a hey, I, I think this is a great suggestion for you to do. He's not suggesting. He is pleading with them. He is on his knees, uh, feeling it in his guts. Please walk in unity. Uh, and he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul knew that they were called in hope, that their identity was in Christ, and they had hope, but the only way that they could really fully experience that hope was with one another. And so Paul says, you need to walk, you need to live in a worthy manner, in a manner worthy of this. And so then he describes what he's talking about in verse 2. He says, we are called to walk and live in humility, in gentleness, we are called to be patient, and we are also called to bear with one another in love, and here's verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul is getting very personal here. We are called to live in unity. We can only truly experience the fullness of hope when we experience it together as the church. Now, we absolutely can experience hope personally through Jesus, but there is something mysterious, mysterious that happens within the church where there is this emphasis of we are the body of Christ together, and it's together that we can experience the, the glories of these things, a foretaste of heaven. So I'm not saying that as an individual you can't experience God's hope. It's just there's something special that takes place in the church, or is supposed to be special. So Paul says we are called to be humble. Now, let's talk about that for a second. When you're talking about unity, the opposite of that is discord. A great example of discord is the United States of America today. All right. So, I know I use this example a lot, but it is in the news and it is, it is prevalent. Take a never-Trumper and a always-Trumper and put them in the same room together. Now, Let's say that both of them profess to, to love Jesus. Just based off their politics, what is that room going to look like? Is it going to be a peaceful, wonderful? Chaos. It's going to be chaos. So when we are living in discord, humility and gentleness get thrown out the window. So Paul is saying that if we're going to live in unity, then the things that need to really be on the forefront of our minds is humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. What you say? A lot of that patience. A lot of patience. <laughs> lot of so Paul is saying this is going to change how we function in a church. Um, sadly, we often don't pay attention uh, to these words. Um, and then I love verse three because he says that we are called to be uh, to be <clears throat> eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of, in the bond of peace. It, it's we are supposed to be stubbornly pursuant of peace with one another. That's really hard. Because if you've ever been in discord with somebody, um, it takes everything inside of you to even do one of those things, <laughs> right? Like, to be gentle when you're dealing with somebody that you think is a moron is really difficult. And, and so it's like, just one of these things is super challenging. And Paul's like, hey, let's do all of them. Um, very, very difficult section of scripture. Now, in verses 4 through 7... Paul once again lays out an example from theology. Why, why are we called to be united? Why are we called to be one? Well, he says that there are seven examples uh, of unity. We have that there is one body. 
There is one spirit. There is one hope. There is uh, one Lord. There is one faith. There is one uh, baptism. And there is one God who is over all and through all. And so Paul says, you all know this. You already know that you're supposed to be united. Live it. Live it. Just, just do what God has called you to do, to do and be who God has called you to be. Then he's going to jump into now talking about the spiritual gifts. So let's read this section really quickly and talk about the spiritual gifts. And I want to specifically ask, how do the spiritual gifts affect unity? Okay, so when we read, think of that question. How does all this stuff about spiritual gifts affect unity? So, verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Uh, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from the, whom, from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. <coughs> the spiritual gifts here. Let me break this passage down and then I'm going to ask that question again. What effect do the spiritual gifts have on, on, on unity and on hope? So Paul says that every single person was given a gift. And then he does this really weird stuff by quoting Psalm 68. And in verse 9 and 10, this whole, like, he ascended, he descended, he's going to ascend again. All this weird language. Um, and so what Paul is saying is, number one, um, the spiritual gifts are, are, are gifts from God. They are, they are given by God as a gift to you as part of his grace. That's number one. Number two is really trippy. Um, it, it, what Paul is saying is that the gifts are uh, spoils of war. Are y'all familiar with that word, spoil? Mm -hmm. Okay, or loot? Yeah. Okay? So, back in the day, a king would defeat an army, and then all the stuff that was left, all the treasure, would be the loot. Okay? Yeah. So, this is really, really funky. Uh, but Paul is quoting Psalm 68 in a really weird fashion here. Um, and he's saying that when God came, when Jesus died on the cross, and he fulfilled his mission, he won victory. And in that victory, he took... The tools and and um, and tools that the tools and and weapons of the devil, he took them as spoils of war. So the very things that the devil used to use um, to destroy people, Jesus took them as spoils, went to heaven, and then gave that as gifts. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So he took all this stuff from the devil, converted it, and gave it to us as gifts. Which is really interesting because in, in the second half, we find out that there are some really specific um, statements uh, and specific uh, functions that the spiritual gifts have. Um, and so it's like he, he took these weapons of the devil, converted them, and gave them to us as the church, and they are actually weapons that are used against the devil. Does that make sense? Okay, this is super out there trippy stuff. Um, it's way out there. But this is, this is what Paul is talking about. Now... He talks about that the gifts, there are four mentioned here. 
They're the apostles, they're the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. And then in verses 12 through 16, we see once again these, um, the purpose. What's the purpose of the guests? They're to equip the saints. They're to build up the body. Um, they are to help us grow in Christ, verse 13. Verses 14 through 16 uh, tells us that the gifts are called uh, to be used so that we can uh, be protected against false teaching. So those are some of the gifts. Now, how do the gifts affect our hope? How, does, how, do, how do these things help us in our hope? What do you think? In our hope. Yeah, like how does it affect hope? How do, like, we know that this section, Paul is, is really talking about the effect of hope and unity. So how do, how do the gifts affect unity? What do you think? How, how, do the, how do the gifts, the spiritual gifts, affect our unity with one another? Well, I, I look at it like a, uh, a team, a football team, basketball team, or whatever. Uh, everybody has certain gifts God gave, mm-hmm. special gifts to different people. And when everybody uses their gift, uh, everybody's doing their part, and it, and it makes that a great team where everybody's doing what they're supposed to do, you know, stuff in the Lord, and makes everything much easier and unites everybody. Well, it's just I really like that imagery of a sports team. Uh, I don't know much about sports. Um, but if you have somebody that is just a showboat, right. do they help the team in the long run? No. no. They may be able to get some spectacular goals or whatever, touchdowns or goals or baskets or whatever. Mm-hmm. But in the long run, that person is actually hurting the team right. by being a showboat. Right. There's no iron team. There is, but there is a meat, which is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so <coughs> the gifts are called to be used by us for what purpose? To help the body. So let's talk about these gifts really quickly. Who are the apostles? What the heck is the gift of apostleship? I think the apostles were uh, God's disciples. Okay. And he chose them to spread the word and make disciples of all of us. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so we have God's the disciples, so you think of like the 12? Right, yeah, okay. the 12. And they okay. were to teach everybody else and so spread, teach me so I could teach you and sure. vice versa. Sure. You know. The disciples were God's chosen ones, right? Sure. Yeah, he, they were close to the Lord. And they delivered his spread, his word throughout, or his beliefs, his word, his beliefs, and they would, they did, you know, follow his instructions. Okay, so the, <coughs> the apostles were called by God not to serve themselves, not to keep the message to themselves, but to spread that message. Okay, so there's a lot of debate as to who modern day apostles are. A whole lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I keep cutting you guys. I was just going to ask you that. Who are the modern day disciples? That's a really great. Uh, and so. Disciples is different from apostles. Disciples means that we are. Um, disciples means we are just followers of Jesus. So everybody's a disciple. Right. But the gift of apostleship is a little bit different. So um, Baptists tend to believe that the gift of apostleship means that you're just a missionary. That you're called to spread the gospel. Um, so that uh, for a Baptist or a lot of Methodists, a apostle does not have the same authority that Paul and Peter used to have. Um, Paul and Peter had some seriously amazing, powerful authority. They could perform miracles. They could write scripture. They could... In the modern-day church, a lot of denominations say no one has that same type of authority. However, Catholics believe that the Pope is an apostle, that he has the same authority as Paul, Peter, or Matthew, or any of the others. So that the Pope legitly 
is he is in essence the same thing that Paul or Peter was. Well, the, the Pope and the bishops. Oh, I didn't know about bishops. Yeah, yeah. So the bishops all in, in Catholicism and Episcopalianism <coughs> also, um, as well as Eastern Orthodox, they all have what's called apostolic succession. Mm. So it's the idea that once the apostles died, who took over leading the church? Well, the apostles would appoint bishops to kind of shepherd the church in their place. Mm. And so in each of those denominations, they say that um, the apostles hand on that apostolic authority to the bishops who took over. Now, in Catholicism, uh, over time, they wouldn't say over time, but I would say over time, eventually the bishop of Rome, the pope, um, comes to exercise a greater authority over the others. But uh, all of the bishops would exercise that apostolic authority. So, then in Pentecostalism, and not every Pentecostal believes this, mm-hmm. but some do, some believe that the gift of apostleship is in that same vein as these are people that they can do miracles, they can heal people, they can speak scripture, um, they can do all sorts of, of, of amazing type things. So there's a lot of divide in Christianity. <clears throat> prophets. So he talks about the prophets. And, and let, me, let me pause really quickly and say that this is not the only list of spiritual gifts in the Bible. Uh, there is a spiritual gift list in Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians 12, and a, a few other places. 1 Peter. Um, th- there are other spiritual gifts mentioned, but Paul only mentions four. Um, prophets, again, another one that, that's really highly contested in the modern day church. Um, we know the Old Testament had prophets. We know that the New Testament had prophets. Um, and so the Old Testament prophets, they would, in, in Nick's words, um, they would use the past um, and, and warnings from the future to affect the present. Uh, and so that's, what, that's kind of the role of the prophet. And so in the Old Testament, we do see um, some supernatural, what we would call foretelling in the Old Testament. There's all sorts of uh, really cool stuff that happens in the Old Testament. Modern-day prophets, uh, there's a lot of contention on that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 gives us an idea that a modern-day prophet is a person that can speak directly to somebody's heart. Um, it's very, very interesting. A lot of people say, well, no, these are just preachers, but we don't know. Um, evangelists is much easier. These are like the Billy Grahams. They just have a, a supernatural gifting to share Jesus with people, and people just come to know Jesus. Um, Shepherds and teachers, these are kind of like your pastors. Um, they are doing the work of ministry. They're teaching. They're doing all these things. But the point of these gifts is to affect unity because we are serving one another. By, by, by using the gift that God has given us, we are serving each other. And by serving each other, we are building that unity. And in that unity, we can experience this mysterious hope that we have. That when each of us who individually are experiencing the hope come together, it like magnifies in some form or fashion. Um, and that may be totally wrong, but that's just the way I think of it. Um, is that together, there's something special about togetherness. Alright, so this is, the, this is the spiritual gift section. So, the next section that we're going to look at is, that you all want to look at, is this the household code. Here is <coughs> whew, um, this is extremely difficult, not because of what the text tells us, but because of how these texts have been applied by so many people in horrible ways. This is a section where we get wives called to submit to their uh, husbands and the more difficult ones, slaves to masters. So in order to understand this, we need to understand the culture of that day and time. Um, in that day and age, the, there were such things called household codes. And that was basically the Romans developed, the philosophers developed this system to govern their household. And in that day and age, it was a very easy system. You're the man, you're going to rule over her, you're going to rule over them kids, and you're going to rule over that slave. What you say goes. That was the basic rule. 
Paul is not abolishing the household code. He is transforming it from the inside out. This means that Paul is not in these texts calling for the abolishment of slavery. He is calling for us as Christians in this day and age, in that day and age rather, to transform slavery and marriage from the inside out. Now, that being said, these things that Paul mentions are the ideal. These are the ideal. Marriage is messy. All these things can get really messy. And there's tons of pages devoted to uh, dealing with the mess throughout the New Testament, especially in 1 Corinthians. Um, and in some of the other letters, um, especially uh, dealing with slavery and stuff of that nature. But Paul is going to take this household code, apply it to Christians, and in doing so, he's going to flip it on its head to where no longer is it, you're the man, your word is it. It's, you're the man, Jesus is your boss, you submit to Jesus, and you change how you respond to every other person in your household. Now, this is starts, this household code starts very, very importantly in verse 21 of chapter 5, where Paul says that we are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word submission is a difficult one. What comes to your mind when you hear the word submission? Give in to. Give in to. That is a good one. What else comes to your mind when you think of submission? Yeah, do, do what somebody says. Do what somebody says. Okay. So it's, a, it's the idea or the picture of power. That there is a power struggle. Um, the picture I use in your books on page uh, 26 is of an MMA fight where the guy is choking out another guy. And that's usually what we think of when we think of submission. submission. That is not what Paul is talking about. Right. There have been horrible, horrible, horrible teachers and preachers that have preached that women need to just submit to whatever their husbands say because it's all about power. That ain't what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about mutual submission. Mutual submission is a willingness to put another person's interests above your own so that they may grow in Christ. Okay? Submission is not a power struggle it is an act of the will to help another person grow towards Jesus. Now, Paul has some very specific things to say towards wives in this section and towards husbands. Whew. All right, let's get into it. So Paul is going to give the command to women first. Now, he's going to give the same command to men as well. Women are not the only ones called to submit. Men and husbands are called to submit to their wives as well. Let me make that very plain and very clear. So if my friend uh, Hannah is listening to this, men are called to submit to women as well. Um, Paul begins by talking about how women are called to submit to their, to their, to their husbands. They just have a nickname of being henpicked. Henpicked? When men, when men submit to wives or uh, care for the wives and do whatever the wives ask them. Oh, call, we call, call that henpicked. something much different henpicked. these days. Yeah. Yeah. Much more horrible. Oh, modern day term. Oh, modern day. Term? Really? Well, but I don't want to repeat it in this church. Maybe really? Patrick's <laughs> praying enough. Yeah, there is some. Oh, okay. See, um, so far behind time now. Well, that just means you're yeah, a better person. <laughs> you're a better person than the rest of us. Um, all right. Now, the term hempe is the old term. Yeah, yeah, we, we don't use that term anymore. All right, so Paul says, wives, you're called to submit to your husbands. And then he gives two reasons. 
He says, because men are, 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 are supposed to be in the role of a leader. Now, what does that mean? Because this, this term headship has been horribly abused throughout the history of the church. Uh, because they, they say, well, you're the head, that means you're the authority, you have, you have the power, you're doing all this stuff. That's not what he's saying. Because we've already discovered that Jesus is the head. Jesus is the boss. Now, in this culture, in the culture of Ephesus, the husband or the man was absolutely in the role of provider, protector, sustainer, all these things. That was their role. And, and Paul is speaking to their culture. And so he very well may speak differently to our culture if he had written this uh, now. No. We don't yeah. know. I have no idea. Right. But I do know that in this culture, Paul is saying, look, you need to submit to your husbands. They are supposed to be in the role of a leader. Now, how is a husband supposed to lead? They're supposed to lead like Jesus. How did Jesus lead the people of God? How did Jesus lead us? Did he hold his authority and power over us and, no. and tell us to do horrible things and no. abuse us? And No. Lovingly, kindly. He sacrificed everything for us to the point of sacrificing his own life for us. So husbands are called to be a role model in their family, and they're supposed to lead like Jesus, which means that we're called to sacrifice everything for our wives and for our children and even for if we had slaves in that time period. Which we're going to get to that. Uh, because what he does with slavery is, is really phenomenal. Um, he does stuff that blows minds. All right. Then he says, uh, the next example he gives is, we are called to be like the church. Just like the church submits to Jesus, wives are called to submit. And again, this whole uh, process is, if husbands are, are acting like Jesus, wives are going to have a really easy time submitting. Or they, they, if possibly. Now, husbands. This is where we get really trippy and we start seeing Paul dismantle how modern-day teachers have taught this. Paul says, Husbands, you are called to love your wives. Now, in our day and age, that is not a very big deal. The New Testament is the only ancient writing that commands men to love their wives. Love was nowhere involved for men. They didn't have to love their wives. It was well known in that time period that if men wanted to get, uh, get some mistresses on the side, whatever, don't matter. Paul is saying, no, husbands, you are called to love your wives. And this love is not the romantic love or the brotherly love. It's the God-loving-his-people kind of love. And how did Jesus love us? Sacrifice everything. So Paul is saying, husbands, you got to sacrifice everything. So there is no room in this text for husbands to have power or a sense of I'm in charge or a sense of I can tell you what you are supposed to do because I'm the man. That ain't in this text. Not there. Now, he gives a couple examples for the husband of why they're supposed to love their wives. They're supposed to love, um, example one is they're supposed to love like Christ loves the church, sacrificially. And then the second one we see is that they're called to love their wives like they love their own bodies. Now this is a little bit trippy, but what Paul is talking about here is that most people love themselves, which means that they take care of themselves. They, if you're hungry, you feed yourself. If you're tired, you go to sleep. If you, um, if you're, if you sense danger, you try to protect yourself. There are some people out there that hate themselves, that this does not apply. But overall, most people love themselves. And Paul says, just like you love yourself, you're, you, when you got married, you became one body, and you're now called to love your wife the same way that you would love yourself. And the whole point of this whole thing about men and women in relationship and marriage is that they are called to submit to one another 
so that each other can grow in the relationship with Jesus. Now, this is the ideal. Marriage is really messy. Christian marriages are really messy and really hard. I don't know if I said this on Sunday or not, but if you've, if you've been married for more than a year, really more than six months, you know that marriage is hard. It is not easy. That's why a lot of them fail. A ton of them fail. <laughs> it's messy. This is the ideal. This is what we are called to emulate. We are called as husbands, we are called as wives to submit to one another because what we're really doing is we're submitting to Jesus. We're called to, you know, it goes back to the to chapter 4 uh, where he says that uh, I urge you to walk in all humility and gentleness, right? This idea of unity, if, if, if we're called to have unity in the church, how much more so are we supposed to have unity in our own households? All right, now, he's going to talk to children and he's going to say, obey your parents. And he's going to give them a couple reasons. He's going to talk about how it's right and how that there's a blessing attached to it. And then he's going to talk to parents. And in this day and age, again, the father had the authority to do whatever the heck he wanted to to that child. If his child was acting a fool, the father could throw him in prison or her in prison. The father could sell them into slavery. The father could kill them. It did not matter. The father had ultimate authority over his children. Paul says, you can't do that no more. Paul says, do not provoke your children to anger. You are called to lead your children to Jesus. You are called to be an example. And parents are also called to submit to their children. They're supposed to submit their desires and their will so that the child may grow to be more like Jesus. So again, we see this time and time again. Wives are called to submit to husbands so the husbands may grow in Christ. Husbands are called to submit to wives so that their wives may grow in Christ. Children are supposed to submit to their parents. Parents are supposed to submit to their children. All so that the love of Christ and unity can take place. Now let's get to slavery. <sighs> All right. When we think of slavery in the modern era, we think of slavery in terms of what happened in America, uh, in Britain, uh, hundreds of years ago. Slavery was not like that um, in the ancient time period. Slavery was different. Um, there were some positive... Uh, Positive benefits to slavery in the ancient time, they were limited, but it was possible to actually become a, um, a very important person. Uh, if you were the head slave of a, of a household, that was actually a respected position. And some people would actually sell themselves into slavery to try to work themselves to that position to get that, that pompous, uh, that state. Now, again, I said that's limited. Yeah. Because in this time period, slaves, it was not... All glorious and happy. No, it was slavery. It was bad. It was terrible. Slaves were often abused, horribly treated, terribly killed for sport. Horrible things happened to them. So how does Paul call, what does Paul call a Christian to do if they're in slavery? And you've got to remember that I'm going to say, and I'm probably wrong in this, Nick would definitely have a better statistic, but I'm going to guess over half of early Christians were slaves. Is that right? The vast majority of early Christians were either slaves, uh, women, children, yeah. People with no power. Yes. Yeah, and that's another thing I forgot to say, is that these people had no power. Okay, so the fact that Paul is even addressing them in a household code is crazy, because they were never addressed. And so Paul is, is it's lifting them up to the same standard as men, which in that culture is, is earth-shattering. You didn't do that kind of stuff. Um, and so there were tons of Christians who were slaves, and there were also Christians who were slave masters. And so what does Paul call the Christian to do who was in slavery? Now let me pause really quickly and say, this is not talking about you at your job. In modern-day Christianity, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard preachers say, you know, we need to apply this to your work life. <sighs> sure, you can apply the principles to your work life, but it minimizes the power of what Paul is doing here. Mm -hmm. Paul is not abolishing slavery, 
but he is throwing a wrench into the system that would radically transform it from the inside out. Um, Paul says, slaves, you are called to serve your master like you're serving Jesus. You need, you need to serve your master just like you would serve Jesus. Why? Because God blesses obedience. Now, here is the crazy. He addresses masters. And he says, masters, do the same thing I just told the slave. What do you think about that? That was good. How does that affect slavery? If the master is called to serve the slave like Jesus serves a slave, what happens to slavery? It's not really slavery. It don't seem so bad. It don't seem so bad. They look at it differently. It ain't slavery anymore. If the, if the master can't beat their slave, can't threaten their slave, can't do anything to their slave because they need to treat their slave like Jesus, you don't got slavery anymore. You got family. But racism, is, that's one thing the Lord himself won't have to come down here and wipe that <laughs> I agree 100%. Because that's 100%. The nowhere, and and, and it's, it's back to the forefront again. It had died down, uh, you know. It went to the shadows. Yeah, it went to the shadows. But now it's in the White House. Now it's back in the White House, I say, and it's back out on the forefront again. It is. And we don't have time. America don't have time for that. And no, I agree. And, and that's actually a really interesting point because slavery in ancient time was not based off of race. No, it, it, it wasn't based off of race. No, it wasn't. Um, that, is, that was a new invention that, you know, 300, 400 years ago, they, they brought in that into it. So Paul calls masters and slaves to treat one another like they would treat Jesus. Right. Um, he says, Master, stop threatening them, stop beating them, stop doing horrible things to them. You can't do that stuff because Jesus doesn't do that to people. And then he throws the biggest wrench in the system. And he says, the reason why, Masters, Jesus looks at the slave and you at the exact same, same level. Right. Husband and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, we all on the same level. Which is interesting because doesn't that go right back to chapter 2, which talks about the blood of Jesus brings us to the same level. So this book, which there's, there's themes just that tie into one another all over the chapters. And these, these texts have been so horribly abused throughout the years. But if you read them for what they say, they actually become beautiful. Because imagine, now, I, I, I don't know your marriage stories. But imagine if you were in a marriage where the husband actually lived out what this text says. That'd be beautiful. What if your wife actually lived out what this text said? What if, what if together you actually lived this stuff out? It would be transformational. Uh, if slaves and masters lived this stuff out, it wouldn't be slavery. Uh, and so these are the ideal. This is what Paul is calling us to. This is, this is, this is unity in action. And, and unity is the effect of hope. When we experience hope, the hope of the gospel that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, it gives us hope. And that hope is made strong together. The effect of hope is unity. The foundation of hope is the gospel. And the realization of hope is our identity. So that is Ephesians. And next week will be our last week together. It is chapter 6. I will point out one thing really quick that I forgot to mention in the spiritual gift stuff. Once again, Paul addresses the whole fear thing. He says that Christ gave these gifts, and we are, we are now as the church, we are making, we are making the world and, and know the gospel. And this is a strong presentation of the power of God. So we see these themes all throughout Ephesians coming back again and again and again and again. Next week, we're going to see the climax of this because we're going to talk about the armor of God. And this is uh, an amazing section of scripture that many of y'all are familiar with. And we will talk about it next week. 
that was a whole lot of me talking. Um, it was a lot of scripture, and we skipped a whole mess load of it. Um, so when we, uh, when I get this uh, PDF to uh, Nick, he will then post it, um, and so you can actually get the PDF and just download it onto your computer or phone and read it. Uh, and next, we're going to look at the power of the hope that we have power. We don't have to get spells to protect us from the evil things. Uh, our identity protects us. Our hope protects us. Uh, because we are in Christ and we have hope, we no longer have to live in fear of the enemy. Uh, because Jesus is our protector. Hello, my name is Lorenz, and I am a choir singer here at One Fellowship Church in Waco, Texas. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about our congregation online at onefellowshipumc.org. You can also like us on Facebook in order to stay up to date with the latest events and activities taking place in our community. Please feel free to share this message and others on social media so that more people can hear about what God is doing here at One Fellowship Church. Thank you and God bless.